don't be afraid to say, move ahead without me. And that's one of the biggest challenges founders and CEOs have. That's the voice of Pana Sharma, Chief Executive Officer of Lantern Pharma, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Listen in now to hear Pana's thoughts about leadership and how Lantern Pharma is working at the intersection of artificial intelligence, genomics, and machine learning to advance precision oncology therapies. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Pana Sharma, CEO of Lantern Pharma, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to BioBoss, Pana. John, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today, and I loved your show and listening to it. So thank you for having me. Pana, what led you to your role as CEO at Lantern Pharma? I uh, was a CEO prior to Lantern Pharma at a company where we provided um, a lot of genomic and biomarker services for patients, but also for big biotech and big pharma. I think like 10 out of the top 15 and 18 out of the top 20. And we're doing millions of dollars of genomic work, trying to understand and assess how drugs should proceed or not, how tumors were evolving or not, how they were responding. And I really loved it. I enjoyed every aspect about um, doing that work and learning about it and learning you know, what could eventually impact patients. But we didn't own the therapy. At the end of the day, we were yet another service provider that, you know, was a check mark somewhere. And I thought a lot about the evolution of the company. And in my heart, I really wanted to take a shot at at the bigger prize of really creating therapies that were life altering. And I saw so many wonderful therapies. And I also saw a lot of wonderful insights about how to diagnose patients and how to understand the tumor. But so rarely were they brought together. And there was always some kind of disconnect. Not that I could do it better or differently, but I definitely felt that the next wave of cancer drug development was to integrate that type of effort, to integrate the data that was coming real world from patients and to integrate the biological findings that were coming from large scale discovery and biomarker efforts. And so we tried to transform my last biotech, publicly traded biotech. I left in uh, end of January of 18 after spending probably a good six, seven, eight months developing that plan of how we transform ourselves. How do we do, you know, and I always feel like the ultimate question is like, what do we do best? What is it that we're really doing? We're growing top line revenue by 20X percent a year. We're, you know, sucking up this kind of capital. We're launching these assays. We're, you know, all, all that is stuff, but what is it that we really are doing? And so I went to the board and I said, look, this is a tough question, but we're, doing a lot of stuff, but not, we're not generating enough value. And our space around genomic services is totally changed. You know, this is a commodity item. And so we're really not being valued for the kind of insights and efforts that we have. But what we're really doing is we're de-risking and accelerating development in many cases. And also in many cases, what we're really doing is helping match the right therapy options for clinicians on behalf of their patients. I said, these are hallmarks of really precision oncology development. So um, like any good board, they were split, you know, and some thought it was a great idea and some thought it was absolutely horrible and, you know, I, and that it was a totally different business. And I recognized that. And I said, there are a lot of companies in the history of biotech and life sciences that have made that leap. 
you know, Genzyme is a great example. Genzyme did not start as an enzyme therapy company. They really started developing as a as an assay and reagent provider for uh, ultra rare enzyme therapy, where they're providing the diagnostic kit and then the assays. Um, and there, there's examples like that throughout the history. Evotech is a wonderful example. They were a client of mine when I was a consultant and banker, and I saw firsthand the painful but very, very disciplined execution of going from being a large-scale services and equipment company, which was the old Evotech, to a biotech. And it took two CEOs, and it took different difficult decisions about what to shed off. And it took difficult decisions about, again, what is that core competency of ours that no one else can do in terms of finding those hits in neurological indications. Let's get someone else to pay us for that. Can we take a piece of that hit? Can we take a piece of the upside? Can we do that over? And now look at them, multi-billion dollar, fantastic biotech, really. Um, and there's, again, many examples like this. Albany Molecular is one. And so I was really inspired by that. And I said, we're living now in an era where the kind of information that we're sitting on has the ability to change drug development. And it has the ability to potentially get therapies out there faster and with less risk. I'd like to have a shot at doing that. Um, they, I did not get that shot. And um, you know, things happen for a reason. I left um, at the end of January. I think maybe the announcement was in early February. Maybe it was first or second day of February. And then I really started talking with companies. You know, I, I had a lot of time. You know, public biotechs, you know, are can be in high demand public CEO biotechs. So, you know, people are saying, well, we have this company and we got this one and this one we want to do IPO. But I really, I said, well, what do I really know now and love? I, and I really knew that I wanted to focus, continually focus on oncology. And I had a long path to get there and that I really understood it. And I was able to take a seat at the table with lots of really intelligent, wonderful people globally in cancer. And I wasn't, and I wanted to leverage that. You know, I sat on the joint venture board with Mayo Clinic. Um, I did, you know, collaborations with places like Sloan Kettering and um, Moffitt Cancer Center and Johns Hopkins. And, and so I thought, you know, I really want to continue in this community of people who are focused on cancer. And so I spoke to a couple of the startups and I was doing, you know, again, part of my analysis is who is using these kind of data and machine learning type approaches to change drug development? or try to change drug development. One of the companies was Lantern. And so the, C, um, the CEO, I knew pretty well, but more importantly, I knew the board members and, you know, from being out there and being in the investor community. And so the VCs and I actually had had discussions about that space and about genomic data and, and, you know, as you are often do over other cup of coffee or, or a cocktail before end of conferences, right. With folks. And uh, one of the, uh, key guys at uh, Bios Partners, and I um, got along very well. And he was the primary reason I'm at Lantern. So he, you know, trafficked me in with the rest of his partners and colleagues and the other co-investors. And a key decision came up at Lantern about you know where was the existing founding team's natural place, and um, they had some very strong opinions on that. And, um, and I, so I got involved with the company in like August. And I think I took over as CEO a few months later in Q4 and and um, was really uh, thrilled to be given the ability to, to kind of take it to the next phase. And so it kind of was a culmination, as I explained to you know some of the colleagues who knew me, but also my family. It seemed like a wonderful culmination of, you know, 
getting to take a company public again, which I'd done twice in the past, but leveraging the cancer knowledge that I had put together over the last seven or eight years. Um, and also my passion for AI and data, which is actually what I studied in college. And what, you know, so it was, uh, I thought, wow, I'm able to harness all these different pieces. Um, and uh, so it just seemed like a natural, it seemed like I would have to say from the day the process started, it just seemed like a perfect fit. When you were going through that process of thinking about integrating these different pieces that weren't quite falling together the way you wanted at your previous company, when you're looking for that opportunity, is one of the things you considered, I'll find a big pharma company that where the infrastructure is there and I'll convince them of the efficacy of this idea and they'll bring me in? It takes an hour sometimes to start a meeting at a big pharma. What we do at Lantern is we have stand-up scrum meetings. They last 15 minutes. I mean, in a in a big pharma, I used to go to some of these big ones that you probably have heard of in, outside Boston or outside uh, in New Jersey. People are 15 minutes late. We're done. We we're done with our stand-up meeting on our about our AI platform in 15 minutes. It starts at 10:45. It's done by 11. Everyone else has other meetings by 11, and everyone has simple notes. I mean, the pace at which we're doing things. I mean, meetings are done differently. The culture is different. The, you know, just the reports are different. We don't need like 12 page things that you put in binders and people are stapling together after a meeting. Like why sit in those meetings that I'm horrible or ill-equipped for? You know, it's, it's a waste of uh, shareholder resources and it could be frustrating to the team also. And so part of that, you know, again, my is, is, you know, don't be afraid to say, move ahead without me. And that's one of the biggest challenges founders and CEOs have. And so I say that now all the time, all the time. So we're having a meeting, for example, about, um, not that this is not important, doesn't reflect the values of the company or myself. It reflects where can I be of best assistance and help? You know, we're trying to determine for upcoming uh, trial, some policies and communications plan around um, uh, compassionate use and making the drug available and how do we communicate that and where do people go and the forms involved and the language and, you know, what do we want to say? And I said, well, there's so many people that are so good at that. And some of you have done it before. Why don't you just tell me, I don't need to be involved in these meetings. I, I'm going to probably frustrate you and make su suggestions that you say, well, we can't do that or we have to do this or we have to do a form. Or, we and I said, you guys already know the answer. There's a, so move ahead without me. If, if, if the stuff looks good, you guys know our brand guidelines, you know where we're going to go. And, you know, I just, you know, I'll save myself three, four or five hours over the course of the next few, you know, I, I don't need to be there. I trust the team will be really good. And I don't need to sit there and just take notes or think about people. I, you know, I think it allows leadership to pop up and allows me to focus on some of the other aspects that I'm really good at. For example, like trying to make a decision on the data lake architecture and who's going to do that and why and grilling the architect that's i know that our radar team could could use my help there and um and also the other thing i learned a lot is that there are things that um there are gifts that each one of your people that you really like have and you got to remind yourself what those gifts are so that you can give them adequate time to shine and so that just like i know i'm really good at xyz things if i don't get to spend time on those things the end result will be different or could be different as the same thing in any emerging company, each one of those people are there because they believe in the mission, they're uniquely gifted, they have interdisciplinary skills, 
They want to feel a sense of accomplishment, which is why they're in a smaller emerging company. And so you have to constantly recognize, hey, you know, Jocelyn is really good at this or Nicole is fantastic at that or Peter is like, you know, can be highly frustrating in these 80% of the time, but this 20%, like there's no one else out there. So you have to really always make sure that you kind of take note of that and allow those people to run with those efforts. And so the biggest challenge oftentimes I see with, with CEOs is, is they sit in too many meetings. And I think that is something that maybe younger CEOs, I think are, I hate to say it's an age thing, but I do think I'm not, I'm not in that group by age. I am older, but I'm kind of sitting in between, but I definitely think that guys who are 50 or over, or maybe 47, there's an age cutoff. They want to be this, the serial kind of manager seat, you know, seat in all the meetings, you know, they want to be seen, they want to have people report in and, you know, make some kind of decision. Whereas I feel like the younger CEOs today, well, you know, they do focus some of their time more narrowly on the one or two things that they happen to be really great at, like either go to market or supply chain stuff or communication or the three or four things they pick, you know, there's ultra rare guys that are gifted at all of those things, but they're usually, you know, they, I think the younger guys will pick the three or four things and leave everything else up to the team. And I don't necessarily see that with guys at a certain age or above. We're now actually getting into where even the biotech companies are very, very different culturally than the new breed of, I would say, more data and um, AI-driven companies in biotech. Because um, you know there are age differences, obviously, in the average age in the data science and AI team is probably you're lucky if you're hitting 35. And for the folks that are drug development people or CMC people or medicinal chemists or uh, molecular biologists, their average age is anywhere from 47 to 70. When you talk about a company like ours and other great companies, Recursion, Atomwise, Benevolent, um, you have whole big squads that are probably lucky to be pushing 30. And that, and that cha- changes a lot in the pace and expectation. And work style and all the other stuff as well. It's moving even further in the direction of being a software company or being a, I don't know, an agile company. Yeah, I think more agile. I mean, you know, drugs still have to be made. You still got to manufacture them. Still have to test them in in animals and humans and software is not going to replace all that. Um, But you can, if you can make decisions more rapidly as a result of software driven methodology, instead of doing a screen against 60 cell lines, you can pick a screen against the eight or nine that are most likely, and you already have engineered the next eight or nine, and you didn't take two months to do that, then, you know, that just changes the pace. So the whole, you know, whole preclinical ramp up instead of taking one year, if it can take you three months or four months, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings every month in a biotech. And, you know, so that, you know, all that stuff adds up and all that is software driven. And so um, if you can get the right cancer biology people, and the right software people together and to get them to start mashing properly. That's like magic. That's how these, that's how you can create great companies because that's tough to do. Even in big pharma today, it's very rare to find that with the exception of a few, but they typically have their data people in a silo. They have their bioinformatics people as an internal service provider to maybe the biology team 
and the biology team doesn't really listen to bioinformatics people because they don't speak the language and the bioinformatics people don't understand really everything about drug development or clinical trial design because they feel like, well, we told you the markers, why aren't you using them? And so it, there's this, you know, it's uh, the sense of silos is much more powerful than the sense of team. As I've understood what you've said, you're gifts, one of your gifts is to know when to say move ahead without me. Implicit in that, it sounds like, is the ability to say, I know enough about this to put this person, this person in touch and keep an eye on it, but not to feel like I have to be the connector. So how do you, how do you find that balance? I mean, that must be a hard thing to know. Sometimes things don't happen at the pace you want it and you kick yourself for not being more involved. And, but sometimes things happen that you know would not have happened if you were sitting with your thumb on it or they went totally a different direction. You also have to try new things, you know. Sometimes you try new things and and uh, you have you think there's a 10% chance of it working, but you're going to learn from it. So, can you remember when you were 8 or 9 or 10 and you were thinking, "Well, I want to be this kind of person when I grow up." Most for most of us that was undoubtedly I wonder what my parents want me to be when I get to be of, an, of that age. So can you remember what that was? Does that have anything to do with where you are in life now? I wanted to um, be a brain scientist. I really thought like we could create artif artificial brains. And, you know, this was the rise of the computer. So when I was 10, it was 1981. 80, um, um, I was born in 71. Um, so it was, you know, those were early PC years, if you remember, right? The world of like Atari was coming home and Commodores. And so there was this great idea that, you know, we could one day have these, you know, banks of computers that could think like a human. And I thought maybe one day we could reduce the neural circuitry to stuff that could be replicated on chips or boards or, and I remember taking a programming class and I was really fortunate to grow up in California at the time I did. Um, and they, I took a class, I think I was like 10 years old, maybe nine. I don't know. I was pretty young it, at the local community college programming. And I remember programming on stacks of cards. So that's, that's how old it was. I mean, no one, even my age actually knows that. I just happened to be, have that experience. I have no idea how I did in the class, <laughs> but I took the class or maybe I audited. I don't know what I did, but I remember having to carry the stacks of cards and they would, every 10 or 50 cards, the color would change. So you, in case you, they fell, you could put them back together. I remember doing like simple things like getting it to print and doing arrays of, you know, of like adding things and subtracting things and simple math and, and just thinking, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> which is, which really helped me later because then the whole era of like breaking apart basic programming at home came out where you can hit control break and break into the program and then like find different stuff and tweak and see how it worked. So at that age, I thought maybe, um, but I really liked biology more. I remember I wanted to try to make a brain. I wanted to be, and so I really thought I would be a professor and like one day make, make brain stuff. And the other part of me, I really wanted to be um, and plan cities of the future. I don't know why. I, I just loved it. I was so fascinated. Like every young kid probably like, you know, are we going to have flying cars in the future? Are we going to have, you know, you know, homes that live up in the sky because we're going to pollute ourselves so much? Because remember at the time, LA had smog, bad, bad smog, you know, and um, I remember, and I think, um, I think my dad had some 
allergies to smog and my younger brother definitely did. So we were always, you know, we were always aware. I was always aware about aware of it. And so I remember thinking, well, what if we lived like in the mountains or above? And there was a lot of like, you know, when you go to like Disney, there were like these, these, you know, vertical cities. Right. And so I just thought, well, we could live above the smog layer. It's not that high. And so I thought I envisioned these cities of the future that would be like, you know, they have the, like those monorails at like a thousand feet and like a whole different plateau. And, you know, there would be exist a, you know, an artificial plateau above the smog layer because we polluted everything. So I was fascinated by that concept. And I thought we'd have flying cars like the Jetsons. So I, I remember I would like sit there and draw what these artificial cities would look like. And I definitely thought in like, I don't know, late 70s, 80s, how foolish I was. I thought definitely when I grow up, we're going to have flying cars. <laughs> Well, I think it sounds to me like you are making brain. You're just making brain that <laughs> does something very, very narrow, <laughs> very, very narrow, which I call, you know, narrow AI. And I think that's one of the things that I, when I talk to other people doing AI, I really like to understand kind of what is the, the problem area that you're trying to initially solve for, or that you feel like you've already solved, because you can't go tell a set of code or build a set of code that says, you know, drive a car. You start with something specific, follow a yellow line, make the camera understand that the wheels need to go left or right of this yellow line. If you can do that really well, now you can move on to the next task. Now, if you can teach the computer how to do that task via line, now tell it to teach itself regardless of color. Now tell it to teach itself regardless of the type of line. And so then you can start getting, but what is the one thing that you've really solved for? And that's, again, when I came to Lantern, we said, well, what is the one thing that we kind of feel like we really have solved for? We had a set of algorithms, three algorithms at the time. Now we have like three dozen plus. And one of them was specifically um, to reduce the um, transcriptome complexity um, to something that was much more manageable in some kind of companion diagnostic signature. And those signatures were somewhat, you know, they were replicable. Uh, they somewhat give us some insight on what the biology was of, of the disease. Um, they had genes that were significant, not only statistically, but genes that were significant in terms of biological relevance. And so I said, okay, so that's kind of what we do. Now, now let's, how do we do that in a scale that no one else is doing it? And so we did it well at the time in, in prostate cancer and certain solid tumors, mostly GU cancers. And I said, well, we got to do it in all cancers. So uh, there were com the company had 20 million data points at the time, mostly from cell line and some PDX models. And I said, well, this is not going to cut it. We need real world data. Going back to you know, my own background in that. And I said, we, we need to go to from 20 million to a billion. How do we get to a billion? And so uh, when we went public, we were at 275 million. We're today probably close to 6 billion. So even even one year, we went from 275 million to now over 6 billion cancer data points, over 85% of which are real-world uh, tumor uh, drug interaction data or tumor drug sensitivity data or from tumors pre and post exposed to various drugs or drug classes or from diagnostics. And so now, um, as the number of data points grows, so does your ability to, to go across more tumors. So that makes our algorithms more powerful, allows us to ask a wider scope of questions. It allows us to potentially come up and predict combinations of our drug and other drugs, both approved and in late stage. When we st first started, we didn't have late stage drugs. We only had approved drugs. So now we have late stage drugs. Before it was manually entered. Now robots can read that data. 
before it was, you know, human tagging. Now we can do most of it. Again, robot AI machine does the tagging across 28 measures. Again, going back to like, what does the AI solve for? You know, you have to start with something because unless you do that one or two things really, really well, you can't go on to the next. Any problem is really, really complex. It could be like, you know, what are we going to have for dinner? Someone can probably write an algorithm for that and be pretty close, right? What does the dad feel like? What does the mom feel like? What time is it? What day is it? What's their social class? What restaurants are near them? What, you know, how many daughters they have, how many sons. So someone can probably, and then someone can probably watch a household and say, okay, I've watched all household with three children. Here's what they have for dinner. I've watched all households with one child. Here's what they have for dinner. I've watched households that are make between 50,000 and 70,000, 70,000 and 120, you know, they can put all the variables to figure it out and say, with about 70% accuracy, this is what they're going to have. And um, if you can't solve that, then you can't go solve other problems. So that's the same thing. Let's solve one thing really, really well. And the thing that we're solving has the impact, has a very important impact because we can save thousands of lives faster and cheaper. And that's one of the things I care about most is like, you know, you can hire all these data scientists, all these data wonks, but you have to make sure they understand the mission. Our mission isn't to create great data. Our create great data supports one fundamental thing, which is, Cancer drugs cost too much. Cancer drugs take too long. It should not take 10 to 12 years and close to $2 billion. There's just no way. We have 89 approved therapeutics that are targeted. Forget the you know, bendamustines and the, um, the cytotoxic agents. We have 89 approved drugs for cancer. We have at least 100 different types of leukemias and lymphomas, probably 30 or 40 multiple myelomas, probably six, 700 different types of solid tumors that we can classify genomically. So how long will it take us if we really want to have precision medicine? We should have drugs for all those. Let's say we have drugs for half of those cancers. We need to go from 89 to at least four to 500 approved therapies. And we cannot, it should not take us another 40, 50 years. And it shouldn't take us a billion dollars per shot. We just, no one's got that kind of money or time. So at the core of a lot of this essential problems in cancer is data. It's capturing that data and then being able to generate large scale algorithms that can learn and teach themselves to learn because you don't have enough smart people in the world. You just don't. And so one of the things that we do, and it was one of the big lessons is that if you can't do something by the third or fourth or fifth time kind of automated, then you're not, you're not filling our mission. If we, if everything is going to be manual in the, in the data world, that's, that's not going to work. Then it's only, you know, your ability to replicate it is very low. Your ability to automate it is obviously low and your ability to then scale it is going to be very low. And so that's not machine learning. That's just you being a better data scientist. So, you know, we're, we're, we're solving a narrow enough problem. You know, we're not trying to solve, you know, you know, Google earth and, you know, we're not trying to solve all kinds of really much more, you know, potentially complicated problems. We're solving a very narrow set of problems of where can we point this drug? And if we don't have a drug for it, what does that drug look like? And then what drugs can go together? And every time we do these questions, we got to get better and better at it. Well, we know what drugs to go together, but we can't do it for these 12 classes of drugs. Okay, let's put this aside. Let's do it for the ones that we can do it for. And make and be really good at it. Then let's add more classes of drugs. Then let's add more classes. Why can't we do it really well for these? We don't have enough data. Let's go get that data. So everything that you do really well allows you to then think about where you expand it to. 
And then that I would say is one of also the, the important things. You have so many smart people and they just want to take this huge bite out of everything, right? They just want to be like, oh, I want to do this. And you got to say, okay, well, what, what is it that we're actually going to do? And it's okay to do something very small and specific because that's, you're, you can be, you'd be surprised at how quickly you can scale that in today's world because the data is all there and it's available in oncology and the computing power is there. And it wasn't there four or five years ago. And so that's why probably like other guests you've had, you know, and that, that's why we're able to have these aha moments and be like, wow, we can go back and do it. I mean, you had these brilliant scientists, totally brilliant clinicians who said, oh, I'm going to use this leprosy drug and multiple myeloma. <laughs> I mean, what, what AI is going to tell you that? There's no way, right? And then I'm going to use this, right? So it's just amazing. So, but we should, it shouldn't be accidental. It should be that we, we find 25 of those insights and maybe three or four of them work. And we, we can't rely on the brilliance of, you know, one guy in one generation to do that. What's new at Lantern Pharma? So our platform is, you know, we think it'll approach close to 10 billion data points by the end of the year. A lot of that growth is going to be in hematologic cancers. So you can expect a lot in hematologic. Or to date, all of our programs have been in solid tumors. And um, they've mostly been in monotherapy. So you can expect some things in combination therapies that we've identified to start emerging now as well. Uh, we have developed a new molecule called LP284, which is a really interesting molecule um, that has been pretty much shepherded from day one with AI. So there's a lot of um, programs like that. Um, so on the data side, I think there's a lot of milestones that we'll be talking about, and you'll see those da the data manifest itself in terms of new drug programs that are going into humans next year. We have um, two phase two programs now that are active. Again, in very targeted indications, one in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer um, and one in never smokers that come down with non-small cell lung cancer, which is a very different disease, genomically very different, drugs work very differently. And again, you know, we use data to help solve the problem of like, you know, why and how does this particular drug work or not work and can we really rescue it, which at the core of it really was a data problem. It's, and so I think... You know, a lot of the new stuff that you'll see from us is going, you know, we're really focused on getting our insights translated into dosing of humans that improve outcome, that hopefully we can get these drugs to market or sold off to big biotech and big pharma partners and, and, and repeat. And so our team, you know, we're a fairly small team, you know, we're only 17 people. We went public, we were six people. And so we've been able to raise, you know, a big chunk of money, over $96 million in, in uh, public capital and fairly disciplined about our burn rate. And so I think as we continue that, um, we're going to look more and more to external partners. So we'll announce a lot more partnerships. So we've got partnerships with Johns Hopkins, Fox Chase, Sloan Kettering, Citric in the UK, um, partners in Denmark. So we've got a great kind of who's who list in cancer research. And so that'll continue. And so I think partnerships will continue growing our march towards getting these drugs into later stage human trials and the growth of the platform to do more indications, more combinations, and also um, opening up the platform to other companies. In my experience, when a CEO or founder goes to, say, let's say to investor conference and makes that presentation, there's you know, a certain number of people come afterwards and say, yeah, 
I understand it. I want to talk further. A certain number just walk away because they've understood it and they don't have a match. And then a, a certain, a sizable percentage who say, oh, I've, I've heard it. And then you're thinking yourself, or I, as the branding person, thinking to myself, they didn't get it. They, they, they heard something different than what I intended. I'm sure that has happened once or twice in your life. So when people misunderstand who Lantern Farm is, what do they... What do they say? Is there a pattern? And then how do you help to get them back on track? Uh, yeah, that's a wonderful question because it happens, you know, especially with small companies, people hear the pieces they want to hear or, or um, that they're predisposed to. So for Lantern, I feel like a lot of people walk away or sometimes think that we're a service provider, that we're using our AI to help other companies or just to find new uses for a drug. And that is what we do, but we actually develop the drug. We're a drug developer. We're just using AI to develop our portfolio. So instead of using traditional high throughput screening and combinatorial chemistry and, you know, you know, high density biology or whatever you want to call it today and going into animals, we're doing that using computers instead of, you know, teams of, you know, 20 biostats people. We, we have, you know, AI and deep science people. So it's just, um, so I think most people walk away thinking that we're a service service company or service provider that, that tells a company what to do with their drug as opposed to we own the drug, which is, a, as you know, a totally different you know, outcome for investors. Do you still get the time to maybe on a weekend or something when you're with your kids to say, you know, if this crazy thing works out, I'm actually going to help this person, this human being that I have seen in a hospital is going to maybe have a better life someday. Do you, do, do you get that chance or does that come later to think about stuff like that? I was able to spend a little bit of time at and get some unique insights was actually spending time in hospitals when I was at CGI with clinicians and with patients and actually with members of my own family that got cancer and members of close colleagues that got cancer. And um, I think that is something I try to instill for everyone to try to spend time on in the real patient world or really with the tough decisions that clinicians have to make. And so I think that is part of what I like our mission or culture to be is, you know, every day ingrained and knowing that these are tough choices. The number one thing that I hear over and over from adult cancer patients in the U.S. that they're worried about is cost. That's horrible. They don't even have the brain space to think about, should I go on this protocol or this regimen or not? because the, their brain is so consumed by the cost and the time away from family question. And so, you know, a lot of times a clinician has to make tough decisions, but they're oftentimes not guided because the patient themselves isn't spending adequate time thinking about, you know, am I a better candidate for this regimen because they don't have the information or brain space. And so um, I feel passionately about, you know, we have a unique opportunity in our space right now over the next 10, 20 years to totally smash the product development cycle. And every time I see silos, you know, it's every other industry has done it. You know, shirts today cost the same amount of money when I as they did 30 years ago. And it's probably gotten cheaper. Shoes. The only things that have increased in the United States is, is um, higher education and pharma, pharmaceuticals. Those are areas that um, technology and AI have the potential to change, not because they just should be cheaper, but because they can. It makes for a sustainable, more innovative future. If we had 500 cancer drugs, just think how amazing things would be, right? Just, you know, we, so that's, you know, again, it's not just because, hey, you know, 
we're maybe giving too much money to pharma. It's just, you know, is our output strong enough? Do we have enough output? And, you know, I think those people who ask those tough questions can change the future. I mean, look at companies like Uber. They took a, a ride that costs a hundred bucks from JFK and they smashed it. I mean, now they brought it back up, but you know, they changed it. They changed people's thinking. They changed the experience. They changed the amount of data. And uh, we have a similar opportunity, you know? And so I think the COVID-19 lesson of the vaccine development, we can learn a lot from that. Thanks for speaking with me today, Pana. John, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Early in our conversation, Pana said something that resonated with me about the role of a CEO in biopharma. Don't be afraid to move ahead without me. Throughout my BioBoss conversations with founders and CEOs, I've heard several variations on this idea, often beginning with, don't be afraid to... As our conversation unfolded, I heard Pana describe two influences that contribute to his approach to leadership, both based on his conviction that trust drives efficiency and results. One thread appears to go back to Pana's experience with Big Pharma, where the culture of some large pharmaceutical companies emphasize hierarchies and rigid reporting structures. The other strand seems to relate to Pana's leadership at the intersection of artificial intelligence, genomics, and machine learning where data, not rank, drive many decisions. On an individual level, Pana chooses to limit the number of meetings he attends and focus on areas of the business where he feels he can contribute the greatest impact. To make this work in an emerging biopharma company, Pana encourages his colleagues to run with their efforts, knowing that people join Lantern Pharma because they believe in the mission, they're gifted, they have interdisciplinary skills, and they want to feel a sense of accomplishment. A potent aspect of this leadership style is Pana's recognition that if you can get the right cancer biology people and the right software people together and get them to start mashing properly, that's like magic. That's how you can create great companies. An aversion to silos and unnecessary layers of decision-making is a hallmark of biopharma, but this mashing of biology, AI, genomics, machine learning may mark a new stage in the evolution of biopharma, leading us toward a more sustainable and more innovative future. As Pana asks, if in the future we have not just 89 approved drugs for cancer, but 500 cancer drugs, just think how amazing things would be. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.